With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Well, hi, everybody, and welcome to Runner's Digest here at the Boston Marathon, live on Let'sRun.com. And I'm telling you, the place is absolutely jammed to the rafters as the runners of the world have descended on this running capital. Special guests today as we prepare for the 119th running of the Boston Marathon on Monday. Among our guests, two-time Olympian, multiple-time U.S. track champion Matt Tegenkamp, running his second marathon on Monday, hoping to improve on his personal best, which is run in Chicago 2013 at 2 hours, 12 minutes, 39 seconds. Also, Coach Jerry Schumacher, coach of the Nike Bowerman Athletic Club, who, among whose athletes is Teague, plus Shalane Flanagan, again, one of the favorites in the women's division. Also with us, Shalane's husband, Steve Edwards, a sprinter of all things, but we love him just the same. Uh, of course, a record day here on Saturday at the Boston Marathon as the BAA 5K produced American records on both the men's and women's sides and uh, on top of which they're both New Englanders. As Ben True, originally out of North Yarmouth, Maine, now Hanover, New Hampshire, took two seconds off Mark Davis's 1996 American 5K road record and ran 14.22 to beat Stephen Sambu and Kenyon Daniel Salel in the process. Molly Huddle defended her title from last year, breaking the record by... Uh, 22 seconds, running a new American record of 14 minutes and 50 seconds, taking four seconds off Dina Castor's American record, which is run at the Carlsbad 5000 back in 2002. Steve, I understand you ran the 5K2. Did you see any of this? No. Well, we saw a little bit of it because, like, we saw them. It was in, uh, it was like a, out and a back. lollipop, yeah, out and back. So we did see them on the way. Um, did you run last year? Excuse me? Did you run it last year? No, I ran the marathon actually last year. Oh, my goodness. Man. Yeah. Well, that was, that was a, the interesting part was last year I ran 26.2 miles right at six-minute pace. Today I ran the 5K. I didn't run six-minute pace. Like it's an, it can be an ugly world. We yeah, actually yeah, yeah, yeah. train for it the marathon It takes forever to get to that fitness, and you can lose it in a hurry. So. No, exactly. Well, uh, Jerry, you should be surprised by how fast they ran today. They took two 90-degree turns out of the course really turned it where you they didn't break your rhythm whatsoever and with the quality of these fields i mean we've always uh, out in southern california we've always touted the carlsbad 5000 as the world's fastest 5000 but i think they got company i think they got competition here yeah the course the, the improvements to the course made it lightning fast and the conditions this morning were perfect for running so it really wasn't a surprise that they ran as fast as they did and competition drives everything so great competition and you're going to see great races. Great Absolutely. Well, Monday, this is going to build on that. We also had the Invitational Miles, and it was interesting because uh, one of the guys I'm sure you competed against, Dejan Gabriel-Mesco, who was the Olympic silver medalist in 2012 at the 5,000 meters and one of the fastest 5,000-meter guys in history, made his mile debut and won the BA Invitational Mile on a very slow, many-turned course, but he ran 4.04, the second-fastest time ever on the course. He's just a, a fabulous, fabulous athlete, uh, Matt, and it's no surprise. He could probably run any distance and be successful, even though he's a 5,000-meter man. Yeah, I think generally, um, you know, as you are in the, the sport for a long time, um, as long as you got somebody that you can trust and kind of lead you in the, the right path, 
think you're willing to put in the training. Like you can fluctuate distance up and down, and um, I think eventually, like as long as you are willing to put in the hard work and you combine that with some talent, your range is a little bit endless. Well, this speaks directly to you because you've been an Olympian at 5,000 meters, you've been an Olympian at 10,000 meters, you spent most of your career on the track, and now you've moved up to the longer distances. And I was asking you, when you decided to run the Boston Marathon this year as looming ahead, it seems far in some regards, but very short in other regards, that February 2016 Olympic Marathon trial in Los Angeles, which I'm sure you're headed toward. So how does Boston fit into that for you, and what are you hoping for? Uh, Boston did come uh, late, but I think as uh, you know, Jerry and I have uh, you know, been coach-athlete together for a long time. Generally, it's, uh, we like to prepare ourselves and get in shape and build on workout after workout and gain that confidence and then once we're at a certain point we kind of map out our racing schedule and uh, I think that generally the way the marathon works you got to announce stuff so early and I just wasn't ready for that and um, got into very late February beginning of March uh, knew how workouts were kind of clicking and uh, as much as I wanted to focus on the track I knew what I was ready for and capable of and as an athlete you kind of want to put yourself in the best position to be successful possible and um, knowing the big picture and knowing, uh, looking ahead to uh, the Olympic trials, it was uh, very important to get another marathon in. And knowing Boston is one of those races that you definitely want on your resume, uh, it's going to be very hard to fit that in next year and even potentially the year after. And so um, everything kind of lined up correctly. I'm fit, I'm in shape and uh, not burnt from the, uh, the long months of marathon training and ready to go for Monday. Great. Well, uh, Jerry, from your experience of getting Shalane prepared for Boston, what have you learned from that that you now brought to Matt? Well, you know, Matt's a little bit different athlete than Shalane, so I, I wouldn't necessarily have ever compared the two, but uh, definitely less is more with Matt. Yeah. Male versus female, too. Yeah. Okay, yeah, obviously. <laughs> She's cuter. Yeah. <laughs> Less is more, for sure, with Matt, and, um, you know, the way that we kind of made the decision to come to Boston, like you said, it was a little bit late in the game, but it was the way things were kind of shaping up and shaking out for him, the way he was feeling in practice and some of the, the different workouts we were doing, it made the most sense that, you know, I think a marathon is is kind of a good direction to go this spring. Yeah, but a marathon's a marathon, but then you've got the Boston Marathon, and that's a tricky little beast, especially yes. for somebody who's in her second marathon. Chicago, totally a rhythm a paced race and a, and a rhythm race where you basically either you, you follow the pace or you don't they've got multiple pacers you hit your thing you turn your brain off and you just make your body try to perform and either it does respond or not boston as we saw last year with meb's victory part of what makes a champion is the ability to think on their feet and meb's very good at that and i think matt you've proven to be very good at that through your high school career through your college career and on as a pro why does boston fit well this year yeah yeah you know again Matt, the way he's developed, especially this year, I think, just in his training and the way we were going in that direction, he just, he was handling the longer workouts better than he ever has, and, you know, I think he's also happy with his, his track credentials and his track career, and I think, you know, that was the direction we were headed, and he just said, you know, he sat down, he said, Coach, I'm ready to go full-time towards the roads, and I think, you know... As, as well as things have been going, I think I'd like to, to try the Boston Marathon this year. So uh, what are your goals, or if you're willing to uh, tell us a couple of days out? No, I think uh, the way everything's lined up, I think um, ultimately in this race I've you know spoken to 
uh, many athletes that have run here in long tradition, and it's really um, staying composed and running your race and uh, respecting the course. And I think if I do all those things, top 10 finish is certainly the focus. And then at a certain point, it's all about, um, you know, cresting uh, Heartbreak Hill and running through uh, Boston College and having running in your legs. And if you can do that, there's certainly people that you'll be able to pick off over the last four miles um, all the way up to the finish line. So um, it's just kind of how close can I get? And I think if it's anywhere in that, it's shown time and time again, if you can run anywhere between uh, 211, maybe a little bit faster, you're going to place very well in this race. Now talk about the conditions. Last I've heard, the weather temperature is going to be very close to ideal, somewhere around 48, 52 degrees, a very small range throughout the entire day. So when it starts, uh, it'll pretty finish at, which is nice. But I've heard there might be a southeast headwind of 15 to 20 miles an hour. Now, that'll slow everyone down. And I was talking to Desi Linden, for instance, another one of the American favorites. She says, I don't think I'm a 220 marathoner. But the, so the more we can scrub off perfect, the better it is for me. If we can bring the pack back to me, then the fitness that I do have, I can use better. Being a guy who's used to being in close contact on the track, and Shalane's the same way, having come in from the track background as well, and cross country, if you can, on a speed day, they might just go take it off and run 204, and God bless them, there they go. But if you can sort of scrub some perfect off those conditions, that puts you right in the mix. Then you can use the strength that you've got. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, clearly you want to have people to be able to, to run with, and I'm super competitive, and I think that'll be one of the hardest things on race day is to to really pay attention and, and stay within myself and run my race. And um, But if the weather conditions kind of bring all that together, it's, you know, even more exciting for me. And uh, I love being able to key off people around me and uh, really kind of be able to to smell the front and know, um, you know, I'm in the hunt and, and kind of got game face on in game mode. And so I think the longer that that can happen, the better. And um, we'll see what happens on Monday. It seems like, you know, every couple of hours the weather's changing so well that's new england in a nutshell <laughs> yeah. and it's just been hor i mean not that i live here anymore i lived here for 30 years and then i forgot the purpose of cold weather <laughs> and i move out to southern california where you just don't fight and everyone says san diego has perfect weather and i said it's not perfect it's normal that's just normal it's room temperature my body has tolerance levels and minus 10 with 100 inches of snow does not fit into those tolerance levels. I mean, Wisconsin, well, you're a Missouri, I'm originally a Missouri boy, you're a Missouri boy. Uh, where'd you grow up, Jerry? Wisconsin. Yeah, Wisconsin boys, Wisconsin College, and, and North, North Carolina. North Carolina. He's another one who understands the tolerance levels. Humidity is no problem. Those summers are brutal. I would pick, uh, I'd pick a Boston winter over North Carolina in August. Well, July. Missouri, especially St. Louis summers, are legendarily Heat and humidity, fight to get to 100 first and stay the longest. Yeah. <laughs> and utterly, utterly still, squadrons of mosquitoes coming oh, at you, yeah. hungry. Yeah. Poison ivy. Yeah, I mean, all, <laughs> like, all that kind of stuff. Mosquitoes to stay bird in the Midwest. It's very difficult. You know, traditionally, you know, Joan Benoit, Joni went from, originally went down to North Carolina State, from at the Shea Sisters when she was out of, out of Maine. And she then, it's difficult, and, and this is interesting because Shalane went down south for yeah. school. It's not like New England down south, and not all New England girls flower there, yeah, do well. Yeah, yeah. But Chelaine seemed yeah, to do yeah, rather yeah. well. There's a huge difference between North Carolina and in the New England area. Uh, pros and cons, but yeah, no, I mean, she loved it up there to North Carolina. I mean, very fond memories. But I will 
take some credit. She had a really nice boyfriend. She met her freshman year in college and picked up all the, the meals and all that stuff and drove around everywhere. So she white-gloved her first well, uh, few years in North Carolina. From my understanding, I'm an old friend of Shalane's dad, and from my understanding, Steve, there's a bit of a New Englander in you as well. In fact, there was always a joke that is Steve, her, her dad said, Steve Flanagan, if, if you and Shalane ever divorce, can I kill? Can I keep? Can I kill? Still keep Steve? <laughs> yeah, that would, that's gonna be the hardest part about the, if we ever break up. Would be like, oh, I mean, we have a man crush going on, so I'm here top of landing. So, well, that works. Yeah. <laughs> well, I know one last, big happy family. Last year, uh, uh, Steve and the family up in Marblehead, which is for those of you who are not from New England, which is uh, just north of the Boston area, about 20, 25 miles or so, and and just impossible to get to. There's, yeah, no, yeah, direct, yeah. there's yeah. no direct route to Marblehead. You have to weave your way around. They keep it that way. And they it's love free. it that yeah. way. <laughs> but the point is, is the, how's the family going to watch the race on Monday? Well, Shalane's got a pretty big family, so uh, usually there's kind of a mini family reunion uh, this weekend. And what uh, and there's a grandmother involved, uh, an elderly, lovely lady. But uh, it's kind of hard to get her down to the finish line. So usually what they do is they watch the race with her at home in Marblehead. And then uh, they'll make the trek down shortly after the race. It's only about... Well, how far is it? I think it's only about 10 or 15 miles, but it can take anywhere from two hours to 30 minutes. It, there literally is, I mean, there's that old saying in Maine, you can't get there from here. Yeah. Marblehead, you can't, you can't get there from almost anywhere. It's that 114 is the little route you have to jog around yeah. and go through all those other towns off 128 to get there. Well, you know, last year, very famously, we had, on the, both the men's and women's side at Boston, we had very famous races. Uh, Shalane, of course, just taking the wood and putting the wood to all the females right from the gun. That was her plan going in. That was the goal to run a 222. She did exactly that. She didn't realize taking Rita Jeptu, the now drug-confirmed cheat, out of the race. There's no telling what that would have done if she had not been in the race because you can't tease out one factor and expect everything to be just the same. But there's no telling what would have happened. And yet, Shalane PR'd by three and a half minutes in that race. Sometimes we forget that. Then she went to Berlin and did the same thing. Now she got beat again, but she PR'd by another minute or so. So the bottom line is she's still making progress. And in my conversations with her, when I talked to her for the com uh, Competitor Magazine feature I did on her, the whole idea is to go somewhere between what she did. Jerry, is this true? Go somewhere between. Don't go balls out, so to speak, as she did last year. Race a little bit more, knowing that the field is probably a little <laughs> bit more honest this year than it was last year. Yeah, I think the idea is not to be the pacer for the race. Last year, she kind of set up the race for everybody else. And uh, I think this year we want to do, we want her to be able to run her race and, and, and feel comfortable with how she's running, but at the same time, um, maybe not set it up for everybody else. And she has to be able to think on her feet, make decisions as she goes, and, and Matt will be the same way. You have to be able to think and, and know where you're at and what you're doing and um, assess the situation, and you got to make decisions from there that allow you to race your best and place your highest. So, You know, just recently she ran at 3109 at the Stanford Invitational. Now, how does that play into her schedule? Last year, I think she ran the uh, the Jacksonville 15K, 15K yeah. set an American record in that race. Yeah. And I think what that is, that tipped the rest of the field that uh, not only is she an Olympic medalist, but now she's the American record at 15K. I think she wanted to do what Meb did, but Meb didn't plan to do it. Right. And Shalane didn't take into consideration what the other athletes thought of her. And yeah. the minute, because she was who she was, they weren't going to let her go no matter what she did. And she went faster than she wanted to go, and she still couldn't get rid of them. Right. They were ready to, ready to suffer. Well, how did that 3109 10K, very solid performance there, how does that play into preparation for Monday? I think that was more of just, she hasn't raced since Berlin, and 
kind of getting out there and going through the routine of racing again and, and everything that that entails was just an important step for getting ready for today or on Monday. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, I don't think the time means much. It's, it's, she's, when she's ready to race, she's always, she can always run that. She's, she's fit. When she's ready, she's fit, she can always compete like that. And, um, you know, I think more, I think what it told us was that she is ready she's prepared and she went through the little steps that she needed to for, for Monday's race and now she's good to go. Steve, psychologically, where is she this year compared to last year? Because she was so invested in wanting to win this race. I mean, she still is, I'm sure. Yeah. She wants it so badly and sometimes she can want something too badly and can actually have a negative effect on performance. Yeah, I definitely think last year there was maybe a little bit more pressure on her. Where I think this year she has more of an attitude of she has nothing to lose. You know, I think like she has maybe more of a laid back kind of just feel it out type race where last year she had a plan stick to it and, you know and it was it was also like just nerve-wracking with her you know considering the times and uh, she really wanted to win it last year and she obviously wants to win it again this year but there's not that pressure that was you know she's very laid back and easy going in this race last year she, she was a little amped up you know? well no and sometimes in, in the golfing world they always say get out of your own way and if, yeah, if, yeah. if you try to swing too hard you end up not swinging yeah. too hard you got to have those the hands loose yeah and if that looseness might just bring that out and plus again it's Three and a half minute PR, you can't complain about that. Yeah. And another PR after that. Yeah. So she seems to be set up. And she, she said, when she's in a race, she doesn't get injured very much. She she stacks good cycle after good cycle oh, yeah. together. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. She's incredibly healthy. She takes really good care of herself. So uh, we never have training breaks. Yeah. Well, uh, Matt, have you got a game plan at all or just go out and compete and let the race speak to you? I got the, I got the zone. Um, I know what I've been training for, and um, I got a range, mm-hmm. uh, and I'll have a watch and be paying attention to that stuff. And I know there's times where the course will absolutely um, allow for a little, you know, kind of deviation. There'll be some faster miles out of the out of that range, but um, just stay within myself, stay composed, and it's always good. I mean, the American crew that's here, obviously. Um, They've got storied careers and great careers, and it's people that I've been running with for a long time. And it's just, you know, we may not be necessarily running the race together, but they're just good checkpoints on knowing where I'm at in the race. Have you talked to anyone specifically, I mean, among the competitors or athletes who have run the race before about the Boston course? I mean, I know that that Dathan has uh, Greg Meyer, the 83 champion, and Jason Hartman, the two-time fourth-place finisher, who are both Michigan guys, live close to him, and he, he consults them regularly. Yeah, I think uh, it didn't need to go too far out of my group with uh, Jerry and Shlaine and the amount of trips that they've made here to Boston. And I was fortunate enough to come out um, uh, post-New York uh, with a little bit of the, the injury off that. Like, I just came and drove the course, so got a good visual and knew kind of what to expect. And luckily, the the injury didn't stick with me. It was able to come out three weeks ago, do the last long training session. So got a good feel for, uh, you know, what the body's going to go through. Um, in a in a workout setting, but that'll translate to racing and um, yeah, legs kind of came off of it fine and know how to let myself go on those downhills and not fight the ups and be ready to go on Monday. Oh, that's great. Well, listen, we'll let you guys get going. We appreciate you guys taking the time to come joining us here. Uh, we preview the Boston Marathon on Monday. Matt, the best of luck to you. Thank you. Very great seeing you. Thanks, Tony. Same. Nice. Always a pleasleasure. Sort of nice job, Stephen. At five K today, get back to that six minute pace. I maximize my potential, that's for sure. <laughs> All right, thanks, guys. Thank you. Let's say thanks to Steve Edwards, Jerry Schumacher, Matt Teigenkamp. All right.
And we're going to bring up uh, Robert Johnson from Let'sRun.com and Jonathan Galt as well. And I don't know if she's still here, but I do want to recognize that uh, Bobby Gibb, Roberta Gibb, the first woman to run the Boston Marathon, was here a little bit earlier. And uh, Bobby, in 1966, hid behind some azalea bushes 200 meters off from the start of the race. And... Uh, ran around a three-hour, 20-minute marathon, and so she was definitely the first woman to ever run the Boston Marathon. She's a wonderful um, uh, artist, a sculptor, and uh, we're lovely to see Bobby Gibb back in Boston. Well, we're here at the Meter Magazine release party at the Tracksmith pop-up shop at 285 Newberry Street on the corner of Newberry and Gloucester here in the Back Bay. Issue number 01 is now available for purchase on tracksmith.com slash meter. Great stories from Chris Lear, Andy Waterman, Voltman, Emmy Collins, photographs from Harry Engels, Emily May, Bill Gay, and illustrations from Julie Hidd. Available today at tracksmith.com slash meter. I've even got a story in there myself on Meb Kuflowski. Now, also joining us today from Bond, Germany, Dr. Dennis Gleffer. Dennis is the CTO of the Eves Project, a technology company trying to solve the doping epidemic that currently plagues our sport, as well as many others. Their technology removes the human element and location reporting between athletes and anti-doping agencies. Dennis himself is a former sub-47 second quarter-miler quarter a long time ago. But notwithstanding, we're not asking you to run sub-47 here today, so Dennis... Uh, W welcome. Also joining us, of course, back from uh, yesterday and the day before that, Robert Johnson, co-founder of Let's Run.com, and Jonathan Gold, staff writer at Let's Run. So welcome all. And uh, it's been a great day here at the Boston Marathon with the American records at the 5K. Great invitational and high school miles on, on the road as well. Uh, what do we what do we think about these American records? We're already saying Carlsbad was the 5,000-meter course in the world of roads, and I think Boston's joined that elite company. Pretty, pretty. You're right, Tony, and I feel a little bit bad. Uh, 5K was very early this morning, and I must confess that I slept in and set, uh, sent Jonathan instead. So, uh, Jonathan, you actually witnessed it with your own eyes. How, how impressive were Ben True and Molly Huddle out there? Well, yeah, I went into the race. Uh, I, I thought a fast time was definitely possible. Ben had run 13:26 uh, last year, and they were saying that the course was even faster. So, I remember being out at Carlsbad a couple weeks ago, and you know the time was uh, 13, you know they were going after Mark Davis's American record of 13:24, and uh, I looked at that and I said you know Ben is not that far off of it so uh, Ben took a shot and uh, he, he ran a great race 13:22. he was battling with uh, Stephen Sambu the entire way and uh, you know he pulled away at the end but you know I wasn't entirely shocked I was more shocked by uh, Molly Huddle yeah. her, her time was you know, way faster than she ran okay. in this course last year. And uh, 14.50, I mean, that time is really fast, even on the track. So uh, to see her do it on the roads and just be four seconds off the world record, I mean, Gazebe Dababa, she ran 14.48 a couple, couple weeks ago, and uh, we know how good she is. So it was really an encouraging sign for Molly Huddle. Yeah, I mean, uh, the women's time, I mean, she was within 10 seconds of her outdoor track PR, whereas True, it was, you know, it was 20 seconds off. John, were Molly and Ben surprised by their performances, particularly Molly, or did she think she was in really ex excellent shape? Ben wasn't surprised. Uh, he kind of knew what I said. You know, he had run fast last year. The course was a little bit faster, so he thought a fast time as possible. Molly, 
towards the back of her mind, Molly thought, you know, that she she, uh, she was thinking, you know, maybe I could run fast. It's, it's certainly possible, but it wasn't on her mind at all. I think she was out there to race, but she told me midway through the race, she hit two miles in uh, around 9.36, 9.40, somewhere in that range, and she realized, hey, I'm on American record pace. And... You know, from there, she just raced it in. She was focused on just maintaining contact with the leaders and then moving when uh, she got towards the end of the race. She did that, and she broke the record. So, you know, she thought it was quick, but when I told her, you know, the world record's 14.46, to Barbara in 14.48, then her expression kind of changed, and she realized, oh, wow, I might be on a totally different level here. Yeah, four, it was a 4.38 opening mile, whereas Dababa was paced to a 4.50 opening mile. It was slower than they wanted to be because the course and the wind got into play. But it was the second mile of 4.50 here today in Boston. And then Molly closed very strong. And uh, Jonathan, she closed very much just like she did last year. She was not in the lead. She was back in fifth or sixth place and moved her way through and then took the lead with several hundred meters to go on that Charles Street finish. She's a, she's a heck of a closer. Yeah, I mean, she she went through the mile in uh, in the four forties. Four thirty eight. But I I saw I was doing the well. The, yeah, the leader the, came through yeah. four thirty eight. Oh, she Molly was four forty seconds right. back, and she told she told me basically I can't run that fast. I, that's too fast for me to go through the mile, and so she decided to stay relaxed. But the leaders faded a little bit. She and the chase pack caught up to them, and you know she was just she was racing that last mile, not thinking about the time that much, just. Focusing on the win, she got the win, and she got a really fast time to boot. Well, that was really something. Well, let's bring in uh, Dennis here. Dennis, the Chief Technology Officer of the EVES Project. Why don't you explain a little bit what the EVES Project is? I'll try to introduce a little bit before we get Dennis. It's, it's a fascinating thing. I mean, I think it's really important given what happened in Boston last year. I mean, we had, well, really the last two years, I guess, she's won the championship, a cheater. Um, and one of the problems, you know, in the anti-doping movement is runners have to tell the anti-doping authorities where they are 24-7 and three months out. So I don't even know where I'm going to be tomorrow, let alone three out, three months out. So it's a very sort of time-consuming process to think, where am I going to be in three months on Monday and Tuesday at 10 p.m., 12 p.m.? And Dennis wants to take all of that out of it. And also another problem in the, in the, in the fight against doping is, you know, and Mo Traffa, the American, did this, is he would say, oh, I'm going to be in Morocco in three months when in reality he knew he was going to be in America, but he didn't think they would test him in Morocco. So there was no proof of where you were. So Dennis, tell us a little bit about the project. It sounds like it's a little bit of a fitness tracker you wear around your arm that will that will sort of tell the doping authorities where you are at all times. Yes, it's like a fitness tracker. You know, it's uh, depending on uh, technologies which are state of the art. There's no magic inside it. It's a GPS device communicating via short message services. All this scrambled, it's encrypted. Um, right now we're in a scientific development phase. Um, it's founded from the Fraunhofer organization in Germany. It's a famous uh, science organization like Max Planck Institute in Germany. And uh, we would uh, like to get rid of the whereabout process to put everything in advance, the whereabouts three months uh, before. And um, right now, um, we think we do some field testing, even if it's applicable for the athletes, but we are looking forward to it, to uh, have it on the market at the end of the year. Right. right. And you're going to start out in some of the European countries, not in America, correct? Yes, we start in European countries, you know, Germany has one of the strongest data privacy laws. Um, 
we had some disputes with the NSA later on, uh, last time. But uh, yes, we start in Germany because all the science uh, comes from Germany right now. The chips even are not produced in, uh, in um, Japan or China. The chips are produced in Switzerland. So we uh, knew the layout of the chips inside the, the device. And we start in uh, Germany, Italy, France, England, and so on. But Dennis, who would, who, who would purchase the chip? The athlete or federations? The federations. Uh, right now, the athlete, uh, it's, um, um, the athlete won't pay anything for it. Why? It's the anti-doping. He wouldn't do that. And uh, right now, it's the WADA and the uh, National Anti-Doping Agency in Germany. Uh, who supports this uh, project and, and it's funded by the International Olympic Committee right now. But this would scrub a huge cost, not just be able to track people exactly, but it would scrub a huge cost off the top for all these agencies. No, it's not. Wouldn't the device it? itself is about uh, below $100. No, no, I'm saying it would take the cost down for having people go test them, knowing yes, where people are. Ah, I didn't understand you. It would take the way down. No, no, my bad explanation. No, no, no. It would take the cost way down in many regards. Of course, they are uh, not even the missed tests because the athlete isn't there where he promised to be. And if you are trackable, the uh, DCO can just make sure that the athlete is there if he wants to test him. And that's the other side of the uh, medal. Yeah, we were talking before we got on the show. Um, you know, I, at first I asked, does anyone concern sort of, it sounds like a little bit like an ankle bracelet for a prisoner, but you were saying in sort of in Germany, the, the privacy laws are much greater than in America. There will be no tracking of where you are. Only the anti-doping authorities will know we know when it's time to come test you. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. If a doping control officer wants to test you, then and only then he's sending a message to the device and the uh, device replies to this signal if uh, it's a correct um, um, request. Otherwise, there's no um, storage on the device, so there's no tracking of your whereabouts. How did you come up with the idea? A friend of mine, Jonas Plas, who was a participant at the London Olympics, uh, quarter-miler relay, uh, had the idea three years ago. And you see, three years ago, it's a long time for such a process to become alive. It sounds like you guys have really thought of everything. Um, it's, the device is turned off at night when they're sleeping. And during the day, though, if you don't move, it's, there's a motion detector. So if you don't move within an hour, it sets off an alarm. It sets so, an alarm, yes. So people can't sort of purposely leave it behind. Um, Actually, first of all, it was uh, meant to be a first aid device. So if something happens on an ultra trail running or something, like if you don't move, they can't get up. Yes. For one hour or less than one hour, then the device itself sends a signal there's somebody who might need help with a location. We think it's uh, also not only suitable for athletes in the anti-doping program, but also for triathletes or uh, ultra runners and so on. Right, well it's a great idea and we appreciate you taking the time to join us here. Thank you. Dennis, thanks so much. This is the new EVES project and Dennis was the CTO, the Chief Technology Officer, that's trying to help solve the doping epidemic that's plaguing our sport and many others. Thank you so much, Dennis. The best of luck with the project. Once again, we are here at Tracksmith Athletics.
the unique pop-up store at 285 Newberry Street in Boston's Back Bay on Saturday of the Boston Marathon Weekend. I'm Tony Revis, host of Runner's Digest, along with Let'sRun.com co-founder Robert Johnson and Let's Run staff writer Jonathan Galt as we preview the Boston Marathon coming up on Monday morning. And right now going on here at the Trash Smith pop-up store is the Meter Magazine release party. Issue number 01 is now available for purchase at tracksmith.com backslash meter. Great stories from Chris Lear, Andy Waterman, and even myself as uh, this beautifully produced magazine has uh, stories I know that you'll enjoy. Right now, if uh, you guys have any questions listening to us live on let'srun.com, we suggest, we ask that you just uh, go on the message board. Is uh, Robert, that's what you're doing? Uh, yeah, there's a chat box if you're listening live on the uh, page. Go to the forum and you can find the link to the live page and there's a chat box there that you can post your questions. So we're doing both a radio show live and also trying to set up the, the Let's Run forum as we're multitasking here at the Runner's Digest show at the Tracksmith shop. Jonathan, uh, you know, it was really nice weather this morning for that 5K. It was utterly still and it turned chilly as the day went on. And uh, I think the weather conditions are going to continue to somewhat deteriorate. How do you think that's going to play into how this race is run and who will it favor and who will it be a disadvantage for? Well, I don't, I don't know. It's, it's difficult to tell uh, exactly who it would favor. I think, uh, you know, I, th I guess the strength runners, I feel like, if, as you said, it might be a headwind, uh, as it was sort of in the New York Marathon last fall. Uh, that might favor the people who have, you know, put in a little bit more strength, not relying as much on their speed. And, uh, you know, a guy like, like we said the other day, Tedesse, a cross-country guy who's sort of used to running in all conditions, I think those guys uh, really really will benefit what what it might end up hurting is someone who's either unfamiliar with the course or uh, unfamiliar with the marathon distance just because you know there are so many variables that go into a marathon and when you approach it you kind of have in your mind an ideal way that you want the race to play out and uh things will happen runners will take off at different points things like that will happen that will throw off your plan and when you have to account for winds like 10 15 miles per hour that's another thing that's sort of throwing off your race plan it might start making you nervous you're not as confident as you were going into the race so i think the more experienced runners will benefit well we even saw last year the last two years in new york city had headwinds and yet it was still the guys last year like Kipsang and DeCisa. They didn't run nearly as fast as they have other places, obviously, but it was still the top dogs who emerged. Indeed. I mean, I think ultimately the fittest guys and women generally win the race. Um, I, I always think that's one of the problems with the sport in terms of popularity. I mean, the NFL, a not always the best team wins. There's an interception, there's a fluke, there's a fumble. We don't really have fumbles in, in marathoning, but I, I really think this is a, a great thing for the American runners, both on the men's side and the women's side. Yeah. Um, you know, at least it'll give American fans, hopefully, you know, more hope. I mean, they may run away with there, but I used to love, you know, 15 years ago in Flagstaff watching Boston because they didn't have rabbits, so the Americans could stay in the lead pack. And I really think Desi Linden, in particular, could benefit from this because we know she can run 220, 220, 223. We don't think she can run 220, but no one's going to run 220 if there's a headwind. So she can stay in that pack. She can handle 525s, not necessarily 520. So. The longer she stays in it, no one's better than her on, you know, in the last 10K. And on the men's side, I really think it helps to hit, you know, Meb. Um, actually, not, not to brag too much, I had brunch with Meb today, but 
you know, he can't run 204, 205. He ran 208 last year, and he too can see an impact. And someone like that, if you give someone like Meb or Desi Hope at the 20 mile mark, it's going to be really exciting on Monday. I think it could be, especially the women's race, because Shalane, they know Shalane to be that hard-charging front runner. Well, if she's not going to be that this year, who's going to take up that mantle? And if there's going to be a headwind, Jonathan, I can see them all. I can see them running 227. I mean, literally, everyone together, no one wants to go. No one's going to go. You're not going to go. Shalane's not going to go. Next thing you know, it's just going to be to win the race, and everyone's in the mix. I don't think that's out of the question at all, because like you said, there's no dominant favorite, and so they're not keying off of anyone, and no one is going to want to have to set out there and you know do the work up front and really have to you know grind out some 530s or 525s or 515s when uh you know they're going to be getting the effort of like a five flat or maybe a 510 and so yeah i think you're totally right on that tony and uh you know it's something to pay attention to we could see a time you know seven or eight minutes slower than what we had last year well if you take a look at mari Dababa, who you guys have uh, you know seen as your favorite here on Let's Run and that's certainly, there's all evidence because of what she's done in Jamin just this year under 219 or 219.52 time but she's the tiniest one of the field. You know darn well she's not going to go to the front she's going to try to sit in and get shielded just as much as possible. On a tailwind year there's, you know, everyone's got looking for open territory to get blown but here she's going to tuck in as much as she can so I'm looking for the, fa I'm looking for somebody who's going to take the lead and I don't see her yeah, I mean, definitely, you know, I, it'll be interesting to see what happens. I, I was thinking it, it's a shame that it, you would think that she wouldn't take the lead, Tony, because she's small, but I, I sort of was thinking for some reason, just my brain sort of creatively thinking, it's such a shame that Sammy Wanjiro passed early because if he was in this race, <laughs> Full speed like, ahead. like Beijing, he may just do it anyway. So, um, you know, the, the wind is tough and you don't generally want to lead I was thinking in terms of Shailene this may force her to be patient which I think would be a good thing for her because she's got such good track speed but you don't really know I mean it's tough to break the wind but if you get in the lead then they have to come get you in the wind as well so you know it's not any easier if you can actually break them well, yeah. if you can get away. But again, she, last year they wouldn't let her go because she had run the American record at 50K in Jacksonville. Now she's run 3109 for 10,000 meters at Stanford. They know she's in top form. I, I still think that they're going to be afraid to let her go. So even, uh, no matter how withering the pace may be, and it certainly was last year, I mean, they were willing to suffer. And, you know, and we've talked to athletes from Kenya and Ethiopia for many, many years. That's what they do in training every darn day is they basically beat themselves to a pulp. Correct. I think we should go to one of the live listeners. He wants to know uh, what do you guys think of Fernando Cabado's chances? He's been hyping himself up quite a bit for this race. It seems like he might have set expectations a little high considering his PR and past racing considering. Cabado had a really promising marathon debut in 2006 when he ran 212.27 and now he's run 211.36 but it's been 10 years and he's in his 30s. So, you know, Jonathan, do you think it's really possible that he could take a step to that next level, the sub-210 level, even though he's only improved a minute in 10 years? I think he can take a step. Whether he can get to the sub-210 level, um, that's another that's another question, especially on Boston. But if you look at his build-up, he ran 28.32 a few weeks ago at uh, Stanford, and that was in the middle of marathon training. That's a fast time for him. Uh, it's a good time for a guy you know, of his ability at this point in his build-up. So... 
and he did PR last in his last marathon in Berlin, which you know, granted, is a very fast course, but he he granted PR. You can never be unhappy with that. And Shalane uh, Shalane Flanagan herself ran a PR in Boston, oh, sorry, in Berlin last year, and uh, you know, we all we all viewed that as a positive. But you know, he's 33. I I think. You know, this is really. I think he's feeling this is his last shot, and uh, if he if he does well in this one, maybe he can take a step to the next level. But you know, if he thinks he's in the shape of his life, he doesn't run run that well. I think that we've sort of seen what he is as a marathon. But remember that the next step for Fernando and every American is in Los Angeles next February. It's not at the international level. It's making that team. Making that team creates a career, and for somebody like Fernando Cabada. He's still in the mix to make that team, and especially if he does well here. Now, he's coming off a fourth-place finish, also at the Gasparilla Half Marathon in February. Ran that 28-32. He also ran in but the, was it, uh, the Rock and Roll San Francisco. He said that was a tempo run at 66 minutes. So he's been in races. He's used to being in races. He thinks he's in the best place he's been in many, many years, and he thinks at age 33 he has now matured a little bit, so he's not quite the live wire he was when he was a younger man. Yeah, it, it, correct. I mean, the, the the thing that really impressed me was that 28-32. I mean, the half marathon, he only ran 63-23 in New York in March, 14th place. You know, that's not that amazing. But 28-32, and you talk about the live wire, we just came, before coming here, we were at the Brooks event. And Alistair Craig was there, who was a teammate of his at Arkansas. And he's like, oh, you know, Kabata. I'm like, who was on the team with you? He's like, well, Kabata was one of the guys. He's like, that made it interesting. Um, but one of the things I, I thought that was interesting was that he wasn't at the event. It was just Amy Hastings and Desiree Linden. Um, I mean, I guess they're a little bit more high profile. They're, they're people that are likely to perhaps they have a great day to be top five. I mean, certainly for Desi. But I was like, well, Fernando's a, a Brooks athlete. Why isn't he at this event, you know? Well, because he's not one of the high, because we don't know what he would say, <laughs> perhaps. Yeah. But what did we, I got there late for that event. Uh, Jonathan, uh, any, did you learn anything at the Brooks event that we didn't learn at the press conference between uh, Amy Craig and uh, Desi Linden? Um, I, I didn't learn what a ton, I would say, but I think Amy just, you know, she's viewing this very much as a process. This Boston is not the be-all and end-all for her. It's step two in a four-step plan. Step one was Chicago last year, getting back into the marathon. She accomplished that. She ran 227.03. She tied her PR. She was very happy about that because it came on the heels of two subpar marathons. Step two is in Boston today, on Monday. And, uh, you know, she, she just used this as a step. She doesn't really have a huge uh, specific goal for Monday. I think it's more just, you know, making sure she gets out a good performance and shows she's among the top three uh, U.S. women in the country right now. And then steps two and three and four, which uh, we'll see next year, are the Olympic, the Olympic trials marathon and should she qualify the Olympic marathon. And I think, you know, she really wants to be focused on running her best in those two races. So Boston... You know, it's important to her, but it's more of a step along the way than anything that she's really trying to peak for. So do you think that it's more important in that sense, Boston is more important for Desi than it is for Amy on Monday? I would say that. And uh, for, for another reason, in that I believe Desi has a better chance to contend for the win and steal the win than uh, Amy does, just because of her history on this course and what she's accomplished in the marathon. You know, she's run 223. Uh, that... You know, on a windy day or something like that, you know, that, that kind of ability can get you into the, the contention for the victory. And she's also, she, she's small, but she's strong. Yes. I mean, she's a she's a powerful runner, so I think she can 
she can battle the conditions, especially, I mean, she got out of the wintertime, obviously, but she's also been living in Rochester, Michigan for a long period of time, and she knows br- she knows brutal weather pretty well. I'd put a toughness up there with anyone. I mean, uh, you know, you, you, you hear other runners speak about her glowingly in that regard, and, uh, you know, Desi's a very tough runner, and you see it in New York, and in New York last fall, and it's just one of many races where, you know, she's been uh, maybe not in the top five, you know, in the last, at the 15-mile uh, mark, but she will battle and she will pick people off and she will fight everyone tooth and nail all the way to the line. And, uh, you know, we could expect more of that on Monday in Boston. Yeah, I mean, Desi is tough. I mean, her half-marathon PR is 70-34, and yet she's run 222 for the marathon. Right. I mean, right. she basically hits her PR and, and keeps on going. The thing that struck me about her, her talk today at the Brooks event was, you know, they asked, why do you go to Kenya? And sure, it's for the altitude, but she said mainly it's for the weather. You know, it's much warmer in Kenya. It's summer. If you go to altitude in America, cold. it's winter, no matter where you go right now. And the big thing, though, it sounds like is she does. there's no distractions in Kenya. I mean, you're not on YouTube every day. You're not Netflixing it. It's the cell phone sort of work. And you can really just train. And she seems to be someone that just likes that time to herself and that focus. I mean, people, uh, there was a good question from uh, Jesse Williams of Brooks. He's like, well, what do you guys do on Sunday? You know, there's all these activities and, you know, convention events today and you got to do. And she's like, well, I just got off. She bought her family and friends, supporters, uh, Boston uh, Red Sox tickets. They're all going to the game. And she said she was like a kid, like at Christmas. She was thrilled just to have some time to herself, get them out of the hotel room. And she was just going to chill out, maybe watch a little TV, watch a movie or something. But just... You know that focus, and obviously it has. She seems to have really enjoyed the decision to go to Kenya last year and this year. And you know, she only she her preparation wasn't great in New York, but she, it sounds like talking to her that she feels like. I mean, she only ran 72 minutes. She really thought she could run under 70 for the first time there. So she's someone you know. Shailene, obviously, Shailene with the lead last year is obviously getting all the publicity, but I think Desi cannot be overlooked at all. Yeah, she's up to. Speaking of the Red Sox, on Monday there's always a traditional morning baseball game at Fenway Park with the Red Sox. So it gets all, it used to get over just in time for the game to be over, and the thirty thousand people to come out of Fenway spill into Kenmore Square as the wind. The leaders are coming through Kenmore Square with one mile to go. Now with the marathon having uh, changed its start time, it it doesn't work out that way. But on uh, 10 o'clock, I think the game starts on uh, 11. 11 o'clock on, on Monday morning. Bill Rogers, the four-time champion, is throwing out the first ball. And he says, I hope they don't think I'm staying. I, I need to get back and see the race. Yeah. I want to watch the race. Well, I, I don't really want to turn this into the Red Sox talk. As a Baltimore fan, our starting pitcher was thrown out of the game last night. For those of you that do care, the, my beloved Orioles are up 2 to nothing against the Red Sox right now, Tony. So. Any other any other questions on the in the chat room? Uh, I'm sure there are. Hold on one second. Um, well, there was one question from earlier when Matt was on. We obviously didn't get to ask him, but I think John knows the answer to this. The people wanted to know. You know, Tegan Camp was running with Ritz and Matt at that at the NYC half. Then he dropped off with a calf injury. Jonathan, you talked to him yesterday. Has he had any problems with that calf? I mean, you do not want to go into a marathon with any foot or leg problems. 
Um, so what have been the after effects of that calf injury? Yeah, he said, uh, he told me he wasn't worried about it at all. You know, he had been running with them uh, for a good portion of the race, and it got to the point where he couldn't finish, but I asked, you know, I asked very directly, is it a problem anymore? And he said, no, you know, he's not worried about it. But one guy who you might want to be worried about a little bit is uh, Nathan Ritzenheim, because he said in the aftermath of that race, he had to take a few days off from running. And, uh, you know, that's not something you want to hear only a month out from a marathon. He said he's, he's over it now and he's still, he's, it's feeling better, but he might not be 100% in terms of that uh, footage. Well, is that Dathan you mean? Yes, Dathan. So Dathan took how many days off after New York? He, it sounded like uh, three or four to me. I wasn't entirely sure, but, you know, he definitely took a couple of days off of running after that half marathon. You know, well, that's the old bugaboo with him, isn't it? I mean, that he's had that foot problem for a long period of time. It's either been that one thing or another with him, and he finally thought he got rid of that. But he has to play a very fine line with how much work he can do. I mean... Greg Meyer and Jason Hartman, his two friends who he who advised him, always are telling him to, you know, to try to, uh, you want to work on your speed and downhill speed. And he says, well, I can't really afford to run speed downhill in training because I'm too fragile and I might break. Yeah, and, you know, the marathon, there's nothing like running a marathon to stress your body. And he's going to run one on Monday, and you wonder how, you know, how much is, he's done so much work to get to this point. You just want to make sure he's making the right decisions in the race. And I trust that he will. He'll listen to his body. But, you know, the marathon's very stressful, and he's got to be careful how he manages it tomorrow, uh, on Monday, so that it doesn't affect uh, his preparation for the Olympic Trials Marathon. But also, this, this course, particularly with all that downhill running, that really takes something out of your, out of everything. But, you know, there's some hard planting done on this course that are not done in Chicago. Absolutely. Uh, one of the live listeners wants to wants to talk about Nick Arcianaga's chances and his progression in the marathon. Um, you know, Nick's a 211.30 guy. He's sort of been stuck in that 211 range. He ran in 210, 211, 212, and 214. So, Tony, do you think that he's sort of stuck? You know, that's where he is? Or, you know, it's like last year, Mep finally PR. Yeah, but Meb's PR was not live. He's won like nine times under 210, but never broke. 2.9 or something like that. He was very solid. 2.837 isn't significantly. It was. It wasn't like a big breakthrough. It was just an arithmetic improvement. I think Nick sees himself as one of the top Americans, and I think he wants to go out and race. We saw him at the New York City Marathon take the lead at the nine-mile mark. I don't think he's afraid of people, and he's willing to stick his nose into the competition. I think that adds a lot to a how somebody races. He's not just ready to pick people off. He was 10th, I guess, last year at the New York City Marathon, but I think he's ready to compete against anyone because he looks at himself as one of the veterans in the American stable. Absolutely. He, uh, he's very confident, and he believes you know, he's ready to make that jump, not just to being you know, one of the top Americans, but a guy who's comp- competing for you know, top three, top five at these majors. And I think those PRs, you know, on paper, you list them down. It seems like they're stagnating a little. But he ran 211 on this course last year, and he views himself as a guy who's better on a tough course like Boston or New York, as opposed to going out and really hammering one out in Chicago or in Berlin. And, you know, seventh place in the Boston Marathon wearing 211, that's a pretty good performance, but he doesn't want pretty good, he wants great. He, he said before New York last year, his goal was top five, his goal is top five in this race, and, uh, you know, he's going to need a little bit of a breakthrough to get there, but he's proven he can run well on these tough courses. And before we uh, sign off, I mean, we're going to bring in my college roommate and great friend, Chris Lear, famed author of Running with the Buffaloes and uh, sub-four 
Chris, um, in this edition of Meter Magazine, you've written a piece on uh, uh, Johnny Kelly, 1957 Boston Marathon champ. And um, I will confess, I haven't read the piece yet, but I understand what it's about because I'm obsessed with Arthur Lydiard. You know, many people credit Lydiard with the start of the running boom, the high mileage thing. And it looks like your piece sort of says, hey, wait a minute, Johnny Kelly was already doing this three years before that? Yeah, hey guys, pleasure to be with you, Tony, Robert, Jonathan. Uh, you know, it's interesting. I always wonder with Lydiard, he always said that he started when he was running when he was 27 years old, and he was really uh, an experiment of one. He claims to not have had any influences that he experimented on himself, and through his own experimentation, he came up with his famed Lydiard system and uh, how to train. So... I always wondered, is there a guy behind the guy? You know, was there someone that we don't know about that really did influence Lydia and in what he did? And while I didn't find that guy, what I did stumble upon were Johnny Kelly's running logs uh, from when he won the 1957 Boston Marathon. And what you, what you see there is that his story is, uh, is quite different from Lydia's and that he was the national champion in the mile coming out of high school, national record holder in the mile. He was a 421 mile miler, uh, and he did that running on a track that had a right angle turn. Now I could not get that confirmed, but you think about a cinder track with a 90 degree turn on it, what is that really worth? Maybe if- It's like the BAA 5K last year. Yeah, so I mean, maybe, maybe that's really worth in today's, you know, 412, 411, whatever. So when he went to college, the coaches at BU thought he was gonna be the next great miler. And the, the, at the time, the thought process was, for the mile, you run quarters on the track every day. And he happened to be in Boston where he had the BAA right down the road. And the thinking at the time for the marathoners was long, slow distance every day. Well, he was kind of a nonconformist and he thought it was pure drudgery to be on the track running quarters every day. Fell under the influence of Jock Semple and some of the BAA guys. And so you can see how organically from a totally different angle, he arrived at the same point that Lydia did, yet he did not have the inclination to popularize his methods or to, uh, to become, you know, a guru for the masses. Well, Chris, he had to talk his BU coach into letting him run the marathon. I mean, he was desperate to run the marathon, and his coach didn't let him do it one year, and he finally just sort of said, I'm doing it the next year. And fa Yeah, and in fact, he was running, he, he was sneaking out and running 16 milers at 4.30 in the morning. A lot of people call him the father of Amer modern American marathon running. Right, and Tony, you know the lineage, right, that he spawned here at the Boston Marathon. Uh, Lega, yeah, well, he was the... He was the teacher of Amby Burfoot, who was the college roommate of Bill Rogers, who was the Greater Boston Track Club teammate of Alberto Salazar. I mean, it just goes back and back and back. And, of course, uh, young John, as we called him, uh, died last year. But just a magnificent man, very learned, a wonder, very well-read, uh, was much more than just a, a friend to people, just really this mentor to hundreds of people. And now, of course, that wonderful statue of him down in Mystic, Connecticut. Right. Chris, I've got one question. I'm a little bit worried. How do you get your hands on Johnny Kelly's training logs? Are the, are the police going to be involved? Uh, <laughs> you know, those things are probably worth a pretty penny. But it, it turns out that I, you know, I was able to, to meet his grandson, who's, who's an avid runner, 225 marathoner himself, and uh, he was able to, to give me the logs, to take a look at him. And what's amazing is, if you take a look at the day by day what he did in 1957, and you take the put it on an Excel spreadsheet and remove the name and the year. It's thoroughly modern what he was doing. He was doing a lot of tempo runs. He was doing a lot of efforts, uh, what we would now call, um, you know, uh, tempo type efforts that are, are really to, to build to develop your threshold running, 
And he's, the, of course, the only man from the BAA to win the Boston Athletic Association Marathon, although Patty, at the time, Catalano, now Dylan, three times in a row, uh, 1980, 81, 82, came in second in very close ran her PR here as well at doing that. But Johnny Kelly, a very special man here in New England and in the American world of running, and you imagine how famous he would have been if he would have been that kind of guy with that personality, a very good-looking guy, with yep. a wonderful way about him if uh, if he would have been if the sport would have been famous when he was in his prime yeah. he would have been a big he would have been a big star and and 3 years before Lydiard, when you look at the methods and what he employed he was thoroughly ahead of his time i mean i would say he's a visionary in terms of what he was doing well any more quick we don't have any more questions from uh, the forum we're going to wrap up this edition of the runners digest here at this tracksmith pop up party chris uh, thanks so much for not only writing the story but joining us on the Runners Digest here at Tracksmith. My pleasure. Thanks, guys. Great to see you. Uh, Jonathan and Robert, we'll see you tomorrow on our next edition as we make our final picks for the Boston Marathon coming up on Monday, the 119th edition. Do we have to make picks tomorrow? I think we might as well put ourselves on the spot. Once again, we're here at the Meter Magazine release party at the Tracksmith store at 285 Newberry Street in the heart of Boston's Back Bay. Issue number 001 is now available for purchase at tracksmith.com slash meter. Great stories by our Chris Lear, Andy Waterman, and many more, including one I've got on Meb Kaplinski. But right now, Tony Ravis, Jonathan Galt, Robert Johnson. We'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for joining us at Tracksmith. See you down the roads. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.